Well, good morning, everybody. Here's what I know, or here's at least what I'm confident of this morning. I believe God brought you here for a reason. You are here in this building joining us for worship for a reason. If you're a guest, if you've been here your entire life, you are here this morning for some purpose. I don't know what that purpose is. I can't tell each and every one of you what your purpose is. Maybe that purpose was to meet somebody or greet somebody this morning. Maybe you are going to hear something in today's message or you've already heard something in the songs that we sang, the prayers that we prayed that you needed. I don't know what it is, but it's each of our, each of us have to decide. What is it? God, what, open my ears, open my heart. What do you want me to hear? Let's, let's pray as we prepare ourselves for that. God, thank you for this assembly of your people, the body of Christ that meets here. Father God, we want to open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to whatever it is you need us to walk away with this morning. For some of us, it may be one thing, other of us, something else. For some of us, it may be hearing and giving our life to you for the first time. Others of us, it's to put our confidence in you because we've been lacking lately. I don't know what it is, God, but I know you are present where just a few of your people gather. That you are here this morning, your spirit is here, and you are working through those who have given and identified our life under Jesus. So, Father, we want to give you this moment, we want to give you this time, in the name of our Savior Jesus, amen. So, we are going to continue our gospel series through the book of John, only we're not looking through the whole gospel of John. This is just a three-part sermon. We're just looking through the first chapter of John's gospel. And here's my purpose and and why I wanted to do this, this lesson now is I want you, if you, already, if you haven't already, I want you to fall in love with John's gospel. I want you to fall in love with the detail and the intricacy and the love that John has for the message of Jesus. I want you to have that same passion. And so we're doing kind of a slow dive through that first chapter so you can see the richness, the tapestry John is setting up. And Here's the fun part. If you are a young adult, a young professional, if you know a young adult or a young professional, this Thursday, we're actually going to be starting a Bible study on the Gospel of John. And so you're getting a taste of what our regular weekly Bible study is going to be. If you know somebody or if you yourself are interested in that, come talk to me, find us online, send us an email, find a young adult because most of them know what's going on. And we want to get you there so you can find community, but you can also find Jesus in his word. And that's that's what this series is about. So if you ask a trial lawyer, they're going to tell you how important it is, how critical it is to a case to have credible, reliable eyewitness testimony. That's what they want. That's what they desire. And this is why John the disciple, as he's recording this gospel, trying to convince his readers about this guy named Jesus, he's going to introduce us this morning to another John, because I guess everybody loved the name John back then. So we're going to introduce ourselves to another John, who is not John the disciple, the author, but is going to be called John the Baptist. Now maybe you've heard of John the Baptist. We'll talk about him more in just a moment, but just know John is, in a sense, in this opening chapter, he's going to take the stand. He's going to testify. He's going to give his testimony of, hey, here is my personal experience with this guy named Jesus and what I believe about him. He's going to make a pretty radical claim 
But here's what I love about John is John does not recognize his own greatness. In fact, many of us might not recognize our own greatness, but it's not because of anything you did, because of something that's working through you. It's your most powerful tool you have that God has gifted every one of us, despite how unique we are. We're going to learn about that today, but in these opening chapters, John the disciple, he has provided a wealth of information about who he believed Jesus to be. We talked about that last week. Jesus is the Word, right? The Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was God. The Logos was with God. And then in verse 14, we learned that the Logos became flesh and dwelt. Remember, Jesus pitched a tent among us. We talked about this last week and how there's no privacy in a tent, right? There's nothing that separates you from the outside but the thinnest veil and how with Jesus, there is nothing that separates you from God. He has come and pitched a tent in our presence. And now John is going to take that stand and he's going to testify to something very similar because here's what John wants you to know. If you want to know God, you want to know God, you must know Jesus. There's no work around. There's no, you know, you get, you get good life lessons from this. No, if you want to know God, you must know this guy named Jesus. And he's going to write about that at the very end of his gospel, right? He's going to say this in the 20th chapter, verse 31. All of these things that you just read, you're now at the end of the gospel, right? But everything you just read in my gospel was written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's what I want. John's gospel is evangelistic. He wants people to be saved. He wants them to live eternity with the Father, to find eternal hope and security in the Father. But he says there's only one way to do that, and there's this guy named Jesus. You need to know God and in order to know, to know God, you need to understand who Jesus is. So John the disciple, he's building this case. He's, he's entering us into the courtroom. He's summoning reliable, credible sources. He's already made his bold claim about who Jesus is. Now he's going to back it up with people who have witnessed that. And who's he going to bring to the stand? Well, John the Baptist's testimony is a key piece of evidence. It's a key part of, his, of the case that John is building. So let's just read that testimony. If you have your Bible, I encourage you, open up the Gospel of John with us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. It's the fourth of the Gospels, the beginning of your New Testament. And we're going to read uh, down in verse 19. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. So if you don't have your Bible, you can still read along with us. Here it is. And this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist. Here's his testimony. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So these priests, they're questioning John the Baptist. John the Baptist confessed. He didn't deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, okay, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, nope, not the Elijah. Okay, are you the prophets? He answered, no. So they said to him, well, then who are you? Because we need an answer for the people who have sent us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, and John the Baptist said, I am the voice of, of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, John makes a little insert here for his readers. He said, now, these priests, they were sent from the Pharisees. All right, verse 25. They asked him, they asked John the Baptist, then why are you baptizing if you neither are the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophets? And John answered them, well, 
I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me is the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Okay, a lot there. We're going to unpack it slowly. First, let's give a quick rundown. Who is this John the Baptist character? And you really don't need to go much further than what Jesus claimed about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. He says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, wow, that is a remarkable claim from Jesus himself about his cousin John the Baptist, isn't it? I mean, really think about that claim. Of all the men that have come before him, Jesus says John the Baptist is the greatest. I mean, think about some of these dudes, these pretty incredible dudes that have come throughout. I mean, you have, I don't know, Abraham, the patriarch of the faith. You have Moses, the guy who led God's people out of slavery and delivered them to the promised land. You have all of these prophets, Daniel, Elijah, Isaiah, who sacrificed so much for God's name. How about King David, the man after God's own heart? And after out of all of those guys, John the Baptist? I mean, here, here we have a guy. I mean, this is just so remarkable when you think about John's life. He had, he had no political power. He had no social influence. He didn't hold any kind of office. He didn't wield any kind of authority. He wasn't persuasive as a politician, at least. He wasn't a great military commander. I mean, this guy lived most of his life in absolute obscurity. And then he like, walks out of the desert one day, and he starts proclaiming this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what we know about this guy. He was utterly detached from society and culture. I mean, even his appearance, which we're going to talk about, even his appearance was so unusual that I guess people just were like scratching their heads, wondering, who, what is this guy's message? And yet Jesus says he's the greatest man that's born of a woman. John had no connection with this culture, and yet, and yet, God had his hand on John the Baptist before he was even born. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We learn about that in Luke's gospel, right? So uh, John the Baptist's parents' names were Zechariah and Elizabeth, and both of them were barren, meaning they couldn't have children, which was, it's a big deal now, but it was maybe even a bigger deal back then because not only were they losing the privilege of being parents, but they were also losing all social power with that because if you couldn't have children during this time, you were considered cursed from God. Why? Because family was everything. You know, in the West, we are extremely individualistic. It's like, no, I can separate myself from my family and actually get along pretty well. In, in the Bible or in Eastern cultures today, it's almost flipped the opposite. Your family, your reputation, it meant everything. In fact, in the East today, people will often introduce themselves with their last name before their first name because your last name is attached to history. It's attached to a lineage. It's attached to a reputation. And in this time, if you couldn't have kids, it was their way of saying, well, God doesn't want you to have kids because you've done something you shouldn't have done. You're cut off. So it's a big deal to be barren. It's a big deal. And just to put a wrinkle in it, 
Zechariah was also a priest. So he was cursed, considered cursed by God at least, and he was a priest. And we know that because he's performing these priestly duties. Let's read Luke chapter 1. It's important for our context of John the Baptist. Starting in verse 11, it says this, And there appeared to Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. That's how we know that he was likely a priest. He's doing these priestly duties. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him, which is a good response when an angel appears to you. It's just as crazy then as it would be today if an angel appeared to you. So yeah, he's, he's freaking out a little bit. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What prayer? What has he been praying? Well, what do most parents who can't have children pray? They pray for a baby. They want a child. And God heard their prayers. And your, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. Now here's the covenant. Here's the attachment to this specific child. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit of power, with the power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Here's the purpose of this child right here, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. God had special plans for this baby. Right from the beginning, before, this, before John the Baptist is even born, God has had plans. But then we don't hear anything. For 30 years, likely, 30 years, we don't hear anything more about John the Baptist until he steps out of the desert after 30 years and starts preaching. And we know he's pretty well received. We'll hear that in a second, but we know he's preaching. He's preaching, sorry, we'll get to that in a second. He's preaching from Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, right? In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and his message was simple. It was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, here's what we need to know. John the Baptist was preaching the kingdom of heaven is near, and then Jesus steps onto the scene, and what does he say? The kingdom of heaven is here. It has arrived. It's looking at you. John's entire purpose was to prepare, his people's, prepare people's hearts for Jesus to come. Now, how is John preparing people? How is he preparing their hearts? Well, Matthew tells us in chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. There you go. If you want an evangelism tactic, if you want to prepare people for God, that's what you got to wear. It's what you got to eat. Got to have a weird diet. I'm just kidding. There's obviously more to this. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. There, that's a lot of people. John comes out of the desert and a lot of people are starting to flock around him. What is he saying that is leading people to and preparing people for Jesus? Verse 6, and they were baptized by John in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. John's ministry was focused on two things, baptism and repentance, confessing, turning another direction. Now, baptism 
was a way of identifying yourself with John's message. Right? It was a way of saying like, yeah, I want to I want to click with that, right? Because John was teaching these people, "Hey, you are out of sync with what God wants for your life." And the religious leaders, they're not helping you. They're not aligning you the right way. So we need to confess. We need to repent. We need to that word repent or confess, it literally means to change your mind. Or you can think of it as like walking a certain direction and then you repent and you turn the opposite way and walk the other direction. That is what John is calling these people to. You need to change something about you. And then finally someone says, okay, John, I I did it. I recognize I'm out of sync with God. I recognize I need more. I recognize that my religious leaders aren't helping me. I need to focus. I need to turn the other way. And John says, that's great, now prove it. Now prove it. And baptism was the symbol of identification. You know, in uh, that word baptizo, it's the Greek word for baptize. It's a completely practical term for the Greeks. They would use it in the most basic ways. So in fact, one of the most common ways was, you know, we just go to the supermarket and we get, you know, black shirts and purple shirts and pink shirts and it's great. Back then they had the process of like dyeing the shirt and selling it, okay? So imagine you get a white garment and you want to change the garment of the color of that garment for various purposes. So you would have a pool of let's say purple dye and you would take this white garment and you would quite literally baptizo this garment into the purple dye. Now, baptizo means just to submerge it underwater. I'm going to submerge it into dye. But what happens in this process is that while the substance, this is still a garment, that doesn't change. The identification of the garment does change. This white garment soaks in all of this purple dye, and when you take it out of that dye, it is now identified as a purple garment. It was baptizoed. And so John says, you want to repent. You want to say you're turning your life around? Prove it through a new identification. This was a message committed to change. Are you committed to change? Now, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, he was a big deal during this time. We, we read right here, Jerusalem, Judea, the outer regions, they're all coming to hear this message. And that was a problem. That was a problem for this religious sect at this time. Why? Because, okay, you're part of the religious group. You have a guy out in the wilderness, not attached to you, preaching and attracting a lot of people. Now, Pharisees, the religious leaders at this time, they're not idiots. They know they are under the Roman rule. They also know if a Roman comes down on a Jew preaching about God, they are next. So they need to make sure that everything is under their control and they don't have any loose strings out there that they need to shut down. So what do they do? They send some priests. Hey, we're hearing all these people going out to hear this guy named John the Baptist. Go out there, see what he's preaching. So the priests arrive and they ask John, are you the Messiah? Are you the Elijah? I don't think they actually thought this. They're just going through the list. Are you some great prophet foretold? 
And John quickly riddles it off. No, 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 that's not me. Frustrated because John has said everything he's not. They say, okay, then who are you? Who are you? And here's a beautiful thing about John's response. The man who has a crowd gathered around him, who's changing people's hearts and lives, who's preparing the way for Jesus to step. His response is simple. Two important things about himself. He says, first, I'm a voice. That's all I am. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. I'm telling people to change their thoughts about themselves, to change their thoughts about God. I am just a voice. The second thing he says is, I'm a slave. I'm a slave. I'm here to serve, and I'm not even worthy, not even worthy of the one that I'm preparing you for. This reminds me of what Luke says in chapter 17, verse 10. Jesus says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants and we have only done what was our duty. Let's put a pin there. We're going to come back to this. But let's finish our text this morning. Let's read this, the rest of John's testimony here. We'll pick this up in chapter 1, verse 29. There's this last chunk. The next day, so this is happening pretty quickly. John is up on the stand and he's telling people, here's what happened. Boom, boom, boom. I was baptizing, I was preparing, and then this happened. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, we don't have time to fully break that down. Just know during this, during this, this era the only way to forgive yourself of all the wrong that you bring in the world is a sacrifice. And it's usually the sacrifice of a lamb or one of your livestock that is the best. You always give your best to the priest. And the idea is that whenever you hand this off to the priest, your hand touching that lamb is your sin being passed to it. Because every wrong that we do has a cost. Has a cost on us, has a cost on community, has a cost on the world, has a cost on our relationship with God. It all has a cost, and now that lamb is going to pay that cost for us. It's our, it's our mode of forgiveness. And now, John's coming here and saying, here is, Jesus, here is God's best. Here's his best, and he's going to give his life for you. Okay, big statement there, but we'll continue. This is he whom I said, I, John the Baptist, said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Interesting. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Verse 32, and John bore witness, here's his testimony, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is in fact the Son of God. There's three points here very quickly I want to run through about this section. Number one, John the Baptist confirms what John the disciple told us about Jesus, that he is pre-existent, that he's not just a normal man he is a man, but he is a divine person. Remember we said about the Logos was with God and was God, right? He's saying, because if you don't know, John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins. 
John the Baptist is born six months before Jesus. You learn all of this in Luke's gospel. And yet here he's saying, he came before me. He was preexistent. Jesus is the filter in which all was created. The second fly-through observation, John the Baptist confirms that Jesus was just an ordinary-looking guy. He's saying, I was here baptizing, turning people's lives, preparing the way for Jesus, and out from the crowd comes this carpenter with splinters in his hands. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus was not a king. He was not a politician. He didn't have a lot of power. He was not special, at least not by observation. He was a no-name who came out of the crowd. Third observation, John the Baptist right here, tells us everything that we need to know to give our life and allegiance to Jesus. This is it. I'm on the stand, and I'm going to tell you what you need to know about Jesus. This is it. So now you have heard everything you need to know. (laughs) This is what you need. This is my eyewitness testimony that this man is the Son of God. Now, remember, John John the disciple is writing this so that you may believe And that by believing in Jesus, you would have eternal life. He brings about this eyewitness testimony of John the Baptist, who says, yes, I've witnessed all these things. He is, in fact, the Son of God. This is all compelling. And it really is. Because what does John the Baptist have to gain from all this? Nothing. He doesn't have a book deal. He doesn't have an entourage. He doesn't have any kind of platform that he's trying to negotiate with. He comes from nothing. He is nothing. And then he even says, I'm lower than a slave. I am just a voice. Now, I told you we would talk about this, this fascinating thing in the text. You'll notice John the Baptist doesn't recognize his own greatness. He doesn't recognize what he's actually here to do. Despite being a pretty important figure, he completely is humble. He lays himself down and he just refers himself as a slave and a voice. He even stated, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Notice he doesn't say, I'm only worthy to untie his sandals. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'll tell you why that's significant. In Jewish culture, the lowest of lows were slaves. And the master of the house, he would come home, which they didn't have paved roads. It's all dirt, nasty. Imagine going to the beach and you have sand all over your feet. That's what it was like. You don't walk into your house with sandy feet. You clean up, you dust it off, then you go inside because your home is sacred. It's clean. It's yours. So they would come in. The master of the house would come. He would sit down and he would just sit there. And the slaves would come and take off his shoes. They would go off and clean them. They would get a rag and a basin and jar and they would clean all of it, every single gunk, everything you could off the feet. Then they would bandage any cuts or bruises. They would put alms or stipends. And now the master is ready to enter his house completely clean. All of the gunk of the world washed off. Now he walks into his home. That position of the slave, the lowest of lows. I'll tell you why. Jews, if a Jewish master had a Jewish slave, he couldn't, he wasn't even allowed to make the Jewish slave do that task. That's how humiliating that task was. That even Jews had the respect of their slave fellow brother Jews to say like, you're not even that low, I'll find somebody else to clean my feet. And then John the Baptist walks in and says, I'm not even worthy of that when it comes to Jesus. I'm just a voice, I'm just a slave. And Jesus says, John, you're wrong in your self-assessment. 
Right? He says this in Matthew chapter 11 about John. He says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to, who is to come. It's fascinating because when the priest came and questioned John, right, they asked him, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he said, no, I'm not. But Jesus says, hey, you actually are Elijah. Now, let me just stop here because in our world, I have to do this. Let me be clear. There is no concept of reincarnation in the Bible, right? The idea that you can die and come back as another person or a saying is completely foreign to the Bible. That is not at all what's happening here. The Bible proclaims whenever you die, you will eventually face final judgment. That's your life. And then what's to come is up to God, not what's happening here. So who is Elijah? Very quickly, we can see that he had a message, a purpose to call people back to God. That was Elijah's entire work. And so when Jesus says, hey, John the Baptist is Elijah, He's not saying he's the literal reincarnation of Elijah. He's saying his ministry, what he is doing is similar to Elijah. He's calling his people back to God. American author John Ruskin, he has this fascinating quote, which I think is going to help us define the character of John. And I want to just quickly call out all of our men in here who have important roles even more so, maybe more than ever, in our culture, in our homes, in our workplaces, to be these kind of men. John Ruskin says, I believe that the first test of a great man is his humility. Now, I don't mean by humility doubt of his power, but really great men have a curious feeling that the greatness is not of them, but it is through them. And they see something divine in every other man and are endlessly, foolishly, and incredibly merciful. Humility is, not, is, is all about seeing yourself and seeing God the right way. It's not about belittling yourself. It's not about doubting your ability. Humility is not about a lack of boldness or a lack of courage, because John the Baptist certainly was bold. <laughs> he certainly was courageous. He was fearless as he stood face to face with the Pharisees and the priests, and he called them out. For what they were doing. Let me tell you just a little context here. In Jewish tradition, if a Gentile wanted to become a Jew during this time, the first thing they had to do was be baptized. Why? Because they considered your Jewish blood is filthy. It's dirty. It will taint the Jewish blood. Clean yourself from your Jewish bloodline, and then we can now begin this initiation process, right? Then John comes on the scene, and he says, hey, Jews and Gentiles alike, you need to be cleaned. All of us. It's no longer a bloodline thing. It is a heart thing. And all of our hearts are filthy. And he looks these religious leaders dead in the eyes as he says it. John did not lack boldness. He was a man who was defined as courageous. He was not a coward, but he states, I am nothing but a voice and a lowly slave. And yet that voice was powerful enough to carry the most important message of all. This is mind-blowing. John the Baptist, here he is. And now it comes to us. And the question that I kept wrestling with as I studied John the Baptist, how could somebody be so powerful and humble at the same time? 
How can those two realities exist simultaneously? Because isn't that what we want? We want to be both humble and we want to be powerful. We want to make change, but we don't want to run over people. We want to do what's right and we want to have the courage to do what's right, but we don't want to be superior to other people. How do we do it? John says it. John the Baptist says it. He makes it loud and clear exactly the tool that you have to be powerful and humble. It's your voice. It's your voice. That's what makes you humble and powerful. We all have gifts. We all have talents. We all have abilities, whether it's making money or if it's taking care of kids or if it's something entirely different. But when you use those gifts to carry forth the message of Jesus, you can become both humble and powerful simultaneously. It's our voice that makes a difference. Because I want you to think about it. Think about this. When you use your voice to carry the message of Jesus, you are going to become part of something greater than yourself. You are going to become like John the Baptist or Elijah, carrying the message that can change lives. And in so doing, you are going to become great. But it's not great by your own abilities. It's great by the abilities of God working through you. It is your voice that has the power. So let me share one last thing. Land this plane on this thought. Have you ever considered where you get your sense of self-worth from, of self-esteem, what you think about yourself? Where does that originate? It likely comes from one of two places, probably a combination of the two. The first place that we get our self-worth or self-esteem is from others. What do other people think about me? The second place that we get our self-worth is yourself. You completely disregard what other people think of you, and you just look to yourself. Now, that is the significant difference between Western and Eastern cultures. Western cultures, we say, I'll look at myself. I'll figure out for myself where my worth is, where my value is, and that is the only thing that matters to me. In Eastern cultures, it's I will look to my reputation. I'll look to my family. I'll look to what other people say about me, and that will determine my value and my worth in the world, and neither of those is healthy. Neither of those can hold up. Those have both failed and they will continue to fail. You should never let somebody else define your worth. Period. Take it home. Nobody has that power over you. They have no say. They cannot determine your value. At the same time, I can wake up in the morning and feel pretty darn good about myself. I can also wake up some mornings and feel like absolute garbage. So I can't determine my worth either. So where do we go? What do we do? Apostle, the Apostle Paul says he didn't find himself adequate outside of Jesus Christ. That's the only place. That's where he went. So instead of seeking validation from other people or solely yourself, seek it from the one who can actually give you true worth, true power, true humility. So let me leave you with this. Strive to be humble. Strive to be great. Strive to be both of those things. Use your voice to spread the message of Jesus. Use your gifts, the things God has given you to do that. And to achieve that, you have to surrender two things. The first thing you have to surrender, stop letting other people tell you what you're worth. Surrender it. Their thoughts, their opinions, they are not of God. They are of them. They are of man's. They are of flesh. They are weak. They are not controlling over you. Surrender it to God.
Second thing, surrender that vile voice in your own head that's telling you your worth. Surrender it. Because it's also not true. You are, you will say the worst things about you. You will say the most untrue things about you. God has something different. So surrender both of those things. Recognize that your greatness, it lies in the voice as you carry the message of Jesus and he values you more than you could ever imagine. Let's pray about that. God, we thank you for John the Baptist, for his example of being humble, of being great, of being powerful, and doing all of it for your glory. As we carry your life-giving message to others, if it's through the way we make money, through the way we communicate, through the way we love, through the way we care for kids, God, whatever it is, we find true greatness. Lord, help us let go of anything that hinders us from, from becoming great in your eyes. For your opinion is the only one that matters. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.